This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen, Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Thank you so much for listening. We are up to the 20th minute of Michael Mann's LA crime opus from 1995 Heat, starring Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. And today I'm once again, as promised in the last episode, joined by the wonderful Oscar Hillestrom. His resume is intimidating, as I mentioned last time. Host of Showtime's Movie Club, co-founder of Empire Magazine Australia. I read him in FHM Magazine, which means you know that I was a small pervert back when I was 13. Um, and also the host and producer of the Sci-Fi Show. He's a film reviewer on the ABC in both TV and radio form. Sir, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and revealing some awesome behind-the-scenes stories on the last minute. We couldn't resist to bring you to this minute. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, a wonderful experience, and I think this is a terrific idea. Oh, thank you so much. See, Oscar's one of the nicest men in the biz in the biz um and uh yeah thank you so much sir for uh, joining me so guys we ended the last one heat minute episode we were talking a little bit about the beginning of the 19th minute um to sort of cap off a really interesting discussion around just how perfectly economical michael mann is in setting up and sort of building an atmosphere of fear and tension uh, with barely any lines and we start off the 19th minute i'm going to let you guys listen to it and then we can discuss it a little bit further but let's get into it and then we'll dive in i had to get it on man he was making a move i had to get it on in the car took out of ours evenly to make up for his full end because I want to pay off and get rid of this motherfucker right now That is heat and the Pacino De Niro's uh, dining room scene and the shootout. But for me, every time I look at this, I just get a a frisson because it's just (laughs) so beautiful. It's what's even more perfect about it is the effortlessness. And we talked Mm. about how purposeful. Uh, Tom Sizemore's Michael Torito is when he sort of stands up and cages Wayne Grow in the last minute of this podcast and the last minute we were analyzing. And 
we talked about, I loved how you noticed that De Niro puts his hand on that leather jacket. And I think you described it. I can't remember if we were recording or not, because I think it was in between episodes, but you talked about how it's like grabbing someone's shoulder who you don't like at the party and sort of squeezing hello, hello, between gritted teeth. Hello, how are you? And this is the moment, I think, once De Niro slides next to Wayne Grow and then Chirito comes back into his seat, played by Tom Sizemore, and you see this like this little quartet sitting at this table, there's there's a moment where I think finally the penny has dropped for Wayne Grow, like, oh shit, this is I'm about to be you know, I'm about to be hauled over the coals for what's happened in this scene. It's it's it and it's like it happens in a split second. Mm. Well, I think in this situation it's really interesting because the scene builds up. It, it, this is um, one of the classic setups where it's not uh, this happened, then this happened. It's this happened and because this happened, then this happened. Yes. And it's, this is one of the most interesting and perfect ways to tell a story. If you can tell a story where everything happened because the thing happened before it, then your story is always going to flow and there's no way you can get out of ending up wherever you end up. Yeah. Okay, so the most interesting story uh, script writing is when one thing happens and then the next thing happens because that event occurred. And it's that causal connection that makes a story run on in a satisfying way. Now, in this situation, the causal connection, obviously, Wayne Grow has fucked up and gone beyond <laughs> and above, above and beyond the call of duty. Yes. These guys have the shits and obviously you can see that. How is this? Wayne Grow is still living in a fantasy land where he thinks that he's going to uh, get his head slammed into a table <laughs> and be chucked out of the gang, which is perfectly fine. Obviously, the next minute reveals that Wayne Grow perhaps has underestimated his situation. But that, be that as it may, the interesting thing about this is uh, man has cast a non-speaking role for a guy in a split second. Now, this is the guy who looks up at the quartet when Wangro gets his head slammed into the table. And now, it's in the window. It's not just the ta- I love that it's not the table. It's not enough to smash his face on the table. It's also once he rips his head back, it bang against the window as well. And that guy, the non-speaking role, as you're about to say, is just like, he's just setting up a beautiful interaction. Clearly, Macaulay's so pissed that he can't help himself. But the really interesting thing is the pure violence of it spills out. The guy looks across the table and sees this. And it's not some milk toast. It's not um, Walter Mitty. This guy, he's got a bit of a beard. He's got the thing. He could be, you know, an ex-biker or an ex-cop or whatever. He's seen some shit. And then he gets the Tom Sizemore stare. And the Tom Sizemore stare... I think he's up there in the top five all classic movie stairs. There aren't too many people who can just own a moment like that in any situation. Most people, bad guys, whatever, um, they usually follow it up with some dialogue. But this particular moment, there aren't, you know, I rack my brains to think of a scene where that menace has come through. There's one Australian actor, Steve Lamarquin. Uh, in a film called Last uh, Train to, to Frio. Frio. What a great performance from Steve Lamarquette in that movie. Exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. 
where you just the menace is there and something broke when they were a kid something broke when they were younger something happened where the connection between their fellow man has been severed and they could let that show and it's not a human eye it's a shark eye uh, should i use 30 rock um in uh, uh 30 rock quotes but at the same time the thing that makes it interesting is that it's real um whatever is going on in sizemore's head is that this guy if he doesn't look away will die and it's not he doesn't want to make it happen he doesn't need to make it happen it's just going to happen these yes. are the facts that matter and all of this is in half a second and that for me is what makes it so good is he's set up and then the other guys pay off which is you know what i'm not going to argue with that i'm just going to go back to my to my paper it's uh, the, the more that i look at it it's like the equivalent of and this is an everyday experience it's like when you <laughs> drastically underestimate the heat of your shower that you've turned on like like you put your hand in and you're like i think i can hold it here for like a second and you go nope i'm an idiot i didn't i didn't twi-. and that's that scene is like he that stare is so palpable that mm. it, it's like like people talk about staring daggers or you know you, that, mm. that fiery look or shark eyes i think is also a really great yeah. shorthand for that look mm. but this is so much more it, it's it's unbearable it's like looking in the eye of a volcano it's mm. it, it's i can't i can no longer you know it's it's like watching donald trump stare at an eclipse it's you can't <laughs> you can't stare at this anymore it's done he's mm. looking at you with such power that you go, oh, there's no, there's no doubt. There's no doubt mm. that it's the, these guys mean business. And I, I love also that this is one of those rare moments in Neil McCauley's entire makeup in this 170 minute epic that mm. he can't help himself, but exactly. act. And even mm. in the moments where he is seemingly more impulsive he mm. still doesn't react like this. Like, this is so much, so well, much more is, spontaneous. I mean, this is the most interesting thing, is that the professionalism that drives McCauley is what makes him successful. But in the story, it are the moments, the moments where he lets himself go, which is in particular Wayne Grow, yes. and down the track again Wayne Grow, where he lets himself become emotional, is where he literally fucks up. Yes. And... This is the most interesting thing. There's this story dynamic, which is I'm a professional and realistically you look at all the characters in the movie, when they deviate from doing their job one and only, then that's when they get themselves into trouble. And it's most interesting when you look at Kilmer's character down the track when he becomes less emotional and says, I'm going to be professional, that he gets off. But, of course, you know, you go back to Chorito and – the action is the juice. And of course, you know, he's got his life all set up. He's cool. He can walk away. But of course, he can't. No. And character obviously is destiny. And this is what makes Heat work so well because everybody's got their story and everybody follows it on rails, no matter how much you want them not to. Yes. And for me, this is the thing that makes Sizemore's performance really interesting is A, the guy was literally whacked out on drugs. Uh, on a fairly regular basis during the shoot. 
Um, <laughs> yes. He has his background of growing up in Detroit with drug dealers coming through his house as a nine-year-old and stuff like that, where that kind of absence of faith in humanity enters into your soul. And I think that's that rage, that fury as to why the world should be the way it is comes through. And, and, and you talk about him being nine. I, I think that that's an indelible mark that is on a person about being helpless and then being yes. an adult mm. where you are no longer helpless. And I think it's like it, it becomes like a, an equation. It's like right now my equation is that I'll kill you and have no second thought about it. What's you know? I, I, do you think that you're going to start up a problem? And it's like they're just staring into someone's will. And he's, and that's what's just amazing. He's an amazing. He's one of those actors in this film that he's like a linchpin. There's something so perfect about. It. And I think sort of Kilmer on the fringe. You know, Kilmer. They tried to bill him as a leading man, but I think he's always been way more exciting when he's been on the sort of independent fringe. And I think that's what's great about these guys. There's a bit of. There's a bit of grit, there's a bit of wilderness about them that, that that can't be tamed. And I love that in these guys here because it suits to the ground their characters. It absolutely just suits it to the ground. And uh, yeah, it's this that stare, I'll, I'm, I'm racking my brain as you described before. I can't think of a stare that's nearly as good. I, I think I'm the in- first time I saw it, I literally barked out laugh, like barked out a laugh because it was so effective. Yeah, it's yeah, like it just and it's so quick. And this is the other thing with man, and it's this the economical filmmaking was like, I've done the bit, that's it, let's not labor the point, let's move on. Yes, and this is the interesting thing about this scene is that you have the setup, Macaulay loses his temper, they say, All right, and Wangro eats shit and said, Okay, I've, I've got my beating, I'm gonna get my money, that's it, I accept that. And, you know, crossing his fingers, hoping that's all that's going to be. And then you you head out the door. And this is where it becomes really interesting from a directorial point of view, is that the camera has this beautiful uh, move and follows them out the door. But that moment where Macaulay stops and punches uh, uh, punches Wangro in the stomach, the camera doesn't move, doesn't, doesn't react. It's actually the movement of the actor that catches us by surprise because it catches the movement of the camera by surprise. There's no setup for it. And that's what makes it such a shock. Yes. And that's, that is really, uh, that's what cinema is all about where you tell the story by the movement of the camera and not many people can do that. Not many people have the, uh, skills and the experience to say, this is how you tell this story. A lot of people just say, okay, well, this is going to happen. This is happening. He's going to do this, set up the camera, cut to this, make it happen. And it is the juxtaposition of movement and action that makes it more powerful. And I think it's really powerful to to just to tack on to your point about when you have amazing actors who are so engaging and have clearly demonstrated Mm. their ability to be engaging as in Kilmer and as in um, Tom Sizemore in this scene. I love that the, the the contrast of that is they walk out the door and the camera ignores their movement. They walk mm. to the peripherals and you don't follow them, which yeah. which kind of for a second, I, I almost think of that as an inhale 
as like you you <laughs> kind of like a bit of a shock and then the Neil McCauley maneuver the bang the punch in the face and then the grabbing of rank it's it's almost part of the same motion of being shocked because you're like they're not following these important people and they're important and me not seeing them is important and it's only <laughs> after you, you it's absolutely not on a first watch. And I would argue it's probably not up until the, like the 10th, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of this amazing moment where you're so laser focused, even across this table as Macaulay is outlining what's going to happen next. You're watching the intensity that, that Shahila, so Val Kilner's character is looking and staring at De Niro and, and, and Sizemore obviously sort of clearing off the, the distraction, someone noticing what's happening on that table before he kind of comes back and acknowledges what's happening with Neil. And then it goes. The camera mm. just ignores them. And that's... I just think that there's so... Um, it's it's like the camera in this scene is like a baton being passed to who is the most intense, almost as, as far as the feeling of what the purpose of this particular sequence is doing. And uh, I just love that. Exactly what you said, just to, sort of, to, to expand upon it, is that shock. Because it is shocking. Even watching it a million times, I've seen, you know, yeah. uh, at the end of this, at the end of this series, I would, I'll, I'll be staggered to even know how many times I've ever watched this movie. But, but, but I think it's that believability and that commitment also from both Gage and from De Niro that De Niro turns around and cr- like smacks him in the gut and it, it feels like it hits. It feels like sometimes Clint Eastwood in Westerns where he hits a stuntman and you're like, wow, that stuntman probably didn't get up. He probably didn't get up for a week. Um, it feels like he's turned around and he's hitting this guy legitimately. He's grabbing him. And there's, yeah, there's some ferocity in that, in that entire exchange just as we get to this moment. Just as the, the, the 21st minute strikes, we've, we've kind mm. of gotten to this point. Well, one of my favourite things about this and this process is the amount of effort that it takes for us civilians to watch this movie and pass it and see what's going on. And then you realise that these people, Michael Mann and his crew and his actors, had figured all this out for us to just let it flow over us in that minute, in that moment, in the cinema. And the amount of effort and thought that is required to set that up This is something that I think most people don't realise when it comes to making a good film. Yes. And what separates something that is worth talking about 20 years after it's made and something that is can be flushed down the toilet with the rest of pop culture. Yes. And and it's also... You talked about it from a scripting perspective and I I was reading a a great book, sort of... I don't know if it's like an instructional book or I don't know, even know if you want to call it by a writer who is only known as Film Crit Hulk online, but he wrote a book, <laughs> Script Writing 101, and he talks about um, Shakespearean structure. And um, in the opening act, there's a Shakespearean script structure, and I think it's probably the reason I'm talking about it is because I've got Oscar as a former script editor, is it's a five-act structure. And he talks about how that in the first act, one of the kind of great things about a Shakespearean play is that it, it brings you into a lived-in world with an established hierarchy, with an established sort of uh, uh, potentially established conflict. To use the example of like Romeo and Juliet, where you're sort of kind of told 
that these these families there's a conflict and it exists and it kind of has a great shorthand so that you can dive into the next act of the film and i feel like this moment is is literally a cusp of an act because we've seen a lived-in world we've seen lived-in professionals we've seen the fallout of a scene home scenes and everything and this is an actual turning point. This is moving into the second act of the film where irrevocably these characters who are on the tracks, as Oscar described before, to their destiny, this is the next stage of that. And I think what we see later on um, with Wayne Grow is he's kind of, he, he's actually a turning point for acts, what they would call act one to act two. So going from the lived in world to establishing to the next the next part of the act. But Shakespeare's Act 4 often was called The Spiral. Um, mm. And I just love that as a description for Wayne Grow here and also later in the... Much, much later in the film when we kind of get to it is that there are some really significant turning points and the spiral is sort of... this something that's undeniable about the impulse that's going to lead us down that spiral. And I think that this is a moment. So I just love that here we're like 20 minutes in and we're kind of... We've had this established world and we're about to move into kind of the next act of the film right now. Literally. Literally. Well, this, is, um, this is the second. The is, is a crucial point in the film. Yeah. So I just, yeah. The, and, and after reading recently that sort of just pouring over it more from a casual perspective, I was like, wow, this heat more so than anything, I feel like, lives that even though it's expanded somewhat and people can argue that there are different acts and different films and blah 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 let's not get to too inside baseball but I, I think this moment is is a turning point in the film because even even after this moment uh there's just i i, I think there's just something that's happening and there's so what i love about this sequence as well and i'm just going to flip back is You've got Kevin Gage, who's an amazing character actor in this movie. You've got Robert De Niro, who's arguably one of the greatest actors of all time. This is a scene that De Niro is dwarfed. <laughs> He's dwarfed by Tom Sizemore, number one, and even just Val Kilmer, who doesn't even have to say a word as number two. Mm. Like, isn't that just amazing? That this guy who's like one of the double billers, he's just dwarfed yeah. so early on in such a pivotal scene. Well, I think both those guys are fully committed to what they're doing. Um, You've got Sizemore. Um, both of them are keyed into professionalism. Yes. So part of it is uh, Kilmer's looking across at um, De Niro saying, uh, can we kill him? Can we kill him? Can we kill him? And <laughs> yes. Sizemore, like literally, you look at his face. Yes. You can see it, and it's beautiful. Uh, and then obviously Sizemore's there saying, uh, "I'm. what do I have to do to make this scene work? And not scene, but in this moment work for the crew. And so he's obviously being the policeman, ironically, making sure that nothing goes wrong, everything runs smoothly, professionally, as it should. Um, oh, and, and just, can I tack in? I love yeah, the yeah. movement. So there's exactly. a second where Wango gets out of the booth, Neil leads yep. the crew out, and yep. Sizemore intentionally moves behind Wango. He's like, no, no, no. And and I love the, the thing of a policeman <laughs> because it's, you, he's being ferried down the correct pathway, and I just love that. He said, "No, no, no, mate, you're this. You're out." It's like a security guard taking you out of a pub because you had too many drinks. He's just perfectly exactly. taking him out of this place. And this is the thing: none of this information is well. 
what happens next isn't telegraphed in the in the way that you could telegraph it. Yes. Um, it is very economical. You know shit's going down, but you don't know exactly what. But obviously, if you can see see the signs, which comes from Sizemore, which is he moves to the other side of the booth when Macaulay comes in and then moves behind Wangro when they go out, then obviously you can see what's going on. And this from an actor, obviously, blasted out of his mind on coke and heroin, uh, coming to work a bit phased and bringing his A game. And if you think, can you imagine for a second, had he brought this through and kept going with uh, directors of the ilk of Scorsese and of um, Mann and of Spielberg and kept going that way, what he could have done. And, you know, this is this was the guy who, after De Niro had picked him up at his hotel after two days of a bender after finishing his his shoot, took him to his, this is my favourite bit, took him to his private jet. De Niro took him, drove him to his private jet with um, Sizemore's girlfriend at the time, and this was the kind of final intervention. And the irony, well, not the irony, the weird, weird, weird world that we live in, uh, nowadays after Sizemore's been through the ringer and he's kept working, but he's, you know, obviously the quality of work that he's been offered has been up and down. Up and down. Obviously, Renaissance with Twin Peaks currently. But his current sponsor uh, in Narcotics Anonymous is none other than Danny Trejo. So uh, if you think about it, the guy who gave him his first intervention was De Niro, and that wasn't quite enough to keep him on the straight. <laughs> he actually got him on but he didn't know that meth was quite as addictive as it was. Um, but these days he's clean and sober, and it's because Danny Trejo is telling him. Machete. Yes. Machete. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I would quit the drugs if um, Danny Trejo was telling me to. I mean, he's the talent is un, it's it's one of those things that you just sort of the only word you can use is flabbergasted. I'm just flabbergasted yeah. that a guy with that much staggering talent couldn't get it together. And it's kind of those, one of those sad stories, but oh man, you mm. know, if you talk about a show reel, you only mm. have to, I mean, this, how outstanding, you mentioned Black Hawk Down. I completely forgot about Black Hawk Down for just a split mm. second. Saving Private Ryan. He is just, He's on fire. Like he's on, he's, he's, and he's one of those character actors that, that, and they are rare that completely over by some osmosis or presence or just one fraction of a degree of authenticity seems to dwarf the person next to him. You know, I I think of, I think of Sizemore almost as much as I think of Hanks in Saving Mm. Private Ryan. You think of Sizemore, like, and Sizemore in Point Break. He just comes in mm-hmm. and just breaks the movie for ten minutes, and then he just walks out. Like he he completely overtakes the entire film. And then Catherine Bigelow goes, "God, we get this guy off screen because he's too much. He's just like <laughs> Gary Busey doesn't exist anymore. Keanu Reeves doesn't exist." But uh, I I think I think if I was his agent or his friend or his manager, I'd be saying, "Dude, you just need this scene every audition. Just take that in and say, this is my show reel. This is what I can do without any well, words." Even, you know, even in recent years, it's certainly like I think it was 2009 where it kind of hit 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 the end button and said that'll do me. But you look at something, I don't know, uh, always sunny in Philadelphia. There's yeah. a scene where he is a 
Oh, geez. Uh, I think it's a meth-addicted um, trucker who will do things to you and for you in a way that will make you uncomfortable. And obviously you can look at it and say, oh, well, that's, you know, real life squeezing its way in. But it's also um, an actor willing to do whatever it takes to make that scene work. And whilst it's of a quality in a different way to this particular instance, you can still see that commitment where whatever it is that holds somebody back in real life from doing something silly, this is something that an actor doesn't have. And when they let themselves go and become whatever it is, whatever they need to be and show it in that moment, that's what makes it work for an audience. And this is the thing that really makes it interesting for us and looking in this scene because it's a lifetime in a split second behind the eyes that comes through and it works a because the actor brought it but b because man and his editor put it together in a way that really does tell a story um so there are 20 things going on at once it all works beautifully and it's a it's it's a glorious moment for me. Um, and you know what? Tom Sizemore, his life might be the background to this thing, but this moment of art is what makes uh, it so interesting and what makes this movie so interesting and what makes the joy of filmmaking both behind and, I guess, in the cinema um, just something that people will bang on about, clearly. Uh, <laughs> Someone might be mad enough to make a podcast where they talk about a film one minute at a time. Uh, uh, I don't think I can say it any better. Um, Oscar Hillstrom, thank you so much for joining me for a couple of minutes at One Heat Minute. This has been an absolute pleasure. We've both been sampling uh, some some drinks, and I, I think this is a service that you may provide after this podcast, which is sampling your best film uh, to, to alcohol combo. Mine is, I'm a spice rum man, but this is the Captain Morgan black edition um, of, of rum that you might have heard swirling around the glass over here. What have you got over there? What's your what's your drink uh, pairing? Well, my McKellen 12-year-old. McKellen. Uh, yeah, the McKellen, um, this, they've got all sorts of different variations, but uh, for me, the, um, the 12-year-old, which recently made a comeback, thank God, um, is just um, straight up, single malt heaven and you know it's it's kind of the the sheraton of single malts where everybody kind of knows about it but they give it a hard time but at the same time you go there because you know it's good and frankly i think this is something that you've hit upon blake is the matching of alcohol with movies (laughs) i think we can talk about that where you you what goes best with Finding Nemo, for example? <laughs> oh, look, at the moment for me, Finding Dory needs nothing short of uh, a, champa- a champagne, a celebration, because my daughter is the movie that she is the most enraptured with. So if, it's, if, I get, if you get a moment, it's like swill some of that Moe, swill a Dom Perignon if, you're, if you've got that there, because uh, it's a celebration time, because you can get some peace to do a recording like this. Um, guys thank you so much this has been 
thank you so much for listening. Thank you for continuing to listen. Thank you for rating and reviewing if you had and if you haven't, please do. Um, this is a pure passion project, uh, one heat minute. And uh, this little campfire that I started is turning into a roaring bonfire with people like Oscar joining me to talk about heat. So thank you so much, Oscar, again. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. Um, we'll be back absolutely two times a week, Tuesdays and Fridays for one heat minute, two episodes a week, two minutes a week. Um, but much more than two minutes to be talked about. Oscar, thank you so much for joining me once again. Thanks so much for having me, Blake.